A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. But the emperor replied the young man had committed that same sin, that certain offense, twice, and that justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. There's a lot there in that little story that I've not verified if it's true or not, but there nevertheless is a lot in that story. What our offenses demand is one thing. What our offenses, offenses demand, according to justice, it is death, according to the king's law. And what's the only thing that provides deliverance? Well, of course, it's the king's mercy. Then there's the issue of how does one get it? Well, it's according to the king's sovereign will. Our passage this morning touches on exactly those issues, how and why God saves sinners according to his sovereign will, according to the king's mercy, He absolves us of what is required of us, that is judgment. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 9. The book of Romans, chapter 9. We are in chapter 9, verses 14 to 18, and it can be found on page 945 in those black Bibles right there in front of you. 945. Now, Romans 9 is arguably some of the most challenging words in Scripture to hear. You know why? It's because Paul, the apostle, writing in the mid-60s A.D., deals with the topic of election. But regardless of whether we find it challenging or not, right, it's in the Bible, so we're going to deal with it as we preach through the book of Romans, as we preach expositionally, where the main point of the chapter or the passage is going to be the main point of the sermon. And we know that all of God's word is useful for life and doctrine, and it is to be the foundation of the Christian's life. It helps us know who our very God is and helps us worship him. Now, last week we began Romans chapter 9. This week we're in Romans chapter 9 again. And next week we're going to be in Romans chapter 9 as well. And let me be clear, there is no way that I'm going to be able to answer all of your questions that stem from the chapter. Absolutely no way. So, for example... We have the issue of God's sovereign choice. And then you also have the question then of, well, where does human responsibility fall into this? You know, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Let me just say right now, can't answer all your questions. And if you are discouraged about that, friend, you can with God. There is, in fact, the reality that there are the secret things that belong to the Lord But at the same time, there are things that God has revealed to us in Scripture, and it's those things that we are accountable for. But nevertheless, I hope that you are trying to ask good questions, right? That is a very good thing. And I hope that time and time again, we're going back to the Bible to see what God actually has to say about things. And the Word of God is supposed to be the lane, so to speak, that we are to learn to drive our lives And so we really want to go to the Word of God to see what He has said. And where He hasn't spoken, we actually want to be really careful to draw conclusions that aren't given in Scripture. So if you are discouraged, right, if you're discouraged knowing that not all of your questions will be answered, certainly by me, and some even not answered by God, because there are the secret things, this is what you can be encouraged about. Even though we can never know God exhaustively, we can, in fact, know God truly, right? Just because God can't, God's knowledge cannot be exhausted doesn't mean that all that we can know about is not true. And so the things that he reveals to us in his word, all of it is certainly true, and it nourishes our hearts. Romans chapter 9, I'll go ahead and start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then here's our passage for today. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's clear that there is a question that comes from the issue of election. And that is what kicks off our section today. Look there in verse 14. What then? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I wonder if you've ever asked that question yourself. I know I certainly have. Is God fair in this election stuff? Even though I grew up in the church from age six, I actually have no recollection of learning about election until I was in college. And what happened was that some of the friends that we grew up with, they went off to a church or a school, and they attended a church that was known for its expositional preaching. And sure enough, their fellowship group was going through the book of Romans. And every now and then, all of our friends would come back um, to the home church. And of course, they're going to be talking to us about what they're learning and all the fun things that they're learning about back at their new church. And one of the things that they would talk about is election. That God elects some to salvation, not based on anything that we are or what we do, but according to his free and sovereign grace and mercy. I'll be honest, this doctrine of election by God's sovereign grace was really hard to hear. It was very hard to hear. Again, we didn't learn that growing up at the church there. But it was hard to hear not because he does elect. It's what it says in the Bible. Everybody has to deal with it. But because of the gajillion questions that came from the doctrine of election, all, all the questions that I thought came from election, assumptions, conclusions that I thought were necessarily involved in God's sovereign election. One major question was, and is, is God fair? God elects based on his own sovereign grace and not anything that I do or am? That seems so unfair. He chooses some to salvation and then passes over others. And let's admit, okay, not all of us might be like myself, right? Not all of us might think it's hard to hear the doctrine of election. Some of us might hear, yeah, of course, that's what sovereigns do. They rule. God's kings in fact they do what they want to and some of you guys here might actually be really happy with that you know maybe you you absolutely know what it's like to sit underneath a, an earthly rule that is evil genuinely evil and then all of a sudden you're saved and you then you realize that you're under the sovereign rule of a righteous and just god who is loving merciful and gracious you're like praise god god does what he does but some of us here even might be a little bit more skeptical Maybe for whatever reason, you have a nose for what seems unjust. And your mind, right, your mind and your emotion start, starts going, right, when you hear these words about election, all because of this perceived notion of injustice on God's part, for whatever reason. 
Well, friends, when our minds and our, especially our emotions get going, it's those things that we really want to take care of and be mindful of, this skepticism, this suspicion of God. And we want to pay attention to our own hearts. We have to realize that when we come to Scripture, we bring our baggage. We have to know that. When we come to Scripture, when we come to God, we bring our baggage. Imagine adopting a child who only knows evil authority. When they are adopted, let's say, by a, a good, an earthly good person, a moral person, they're still going to bring their baggage to the new family, to their new father, as they learn to embrace the, fa- the loving father, the loving parents' rule. But as we come to the Bible, remember, we want God to speak authoritatively to us, if you're a Christian, and we want God to speak into our lives. And so when we come to Scripture, even Romans chapter 9, we want to come being prayerful, praying that God would, in fact, reveal more of himself to us by his Spirit and that our hearts would be more conformed to him. Our wills be conformed to God's will. Why? We have to do this. Why is it? Well, because we know that our minds, because of the fall, Romans chapter 1, our minds don't think so well. They are off track, in fact, because of depravity, because of our sinfulness, our sinful natures. And of course, our, our, if our minds are messed up, well, naturally, so are our emotions going to be off track a little bit. And we bring our baggage once again. And this is why God tells us to seek wisdom. Look, if you need, seek, if you need wisdom, pray for wisdom. If you need knowledge, pray for knowledge that you might understand the most excellent things according to God. And that helps us. That helps us understand here. It helps us wrestle, but wrestle still wanting to submit to God. I remember um, when I was seriously investigating election for the first time. I was in the Muslim country of Malaysia, of all places. Um, And there I found myself studying election. Keep in mind, by then I had heard about election, right? But it left this bad taste in my mouth. But but I had never really investigated it, like really studied it. And as I was browsing through my cousin's bookshelf, that in and of itself was an act of God because, you know, there was nothing on television and I certainly wasn't one to read back then. But as I was browsing my cousin's bookshelf, I came across this book that dealt with election, that dealt with the claim that God elects based on his own sovereign grace and mercy and not according to anything that we have done. And I was excited. With that bad taste in my mouth, I thought that if I studied it better, I would be better able to defeat those who held to it. Talk about baggage. Talk about not thinking right or not feeling right. I wanted to refute the thing that I had never studied. I didn't even care what it was until I wanted to refute it. That's baggage. But as I laid on my aunt's couch, sweating to death in hot and humid Malaysia, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that this election stuff wasn't just made up by man, but there was an incredibly strong and biblical case for God's sovereign election. I knew that very clearly. But even though I knew it, when I closed that book, a couple hundred pages, I still had a problem with it. My problem was not that this perspective did not make logical sense. No, I knew that I had an emotional problem with it. I felt a desperate desire for the salvation of my family and friends. Right? That touches on election, doesn't it? I wanted to see them saved. I was doing things to see them saved. I was sharing the gospel with them. I mean, God's sovereignty, you see, touches on so many things. It touches on at least the ones right in front of my own eyes where it was evangelism. It was conversion. It was human responsibility. It then was, well, what do I make of my own choices? And are they real choices at all? Because they certainly feel like they are real choices. But friends, once again, if you were like me and find yourself asking these questions that come out of whether emotions or logic, let me encourage you, it is good as God's people to let the word of God, once again, form the lanes in which we live our lives. We want to go back over and over again, once again, to go to the word to see what does God have to say about these things. And as we do, pray that God would help us submit our emotions and our minds to him. In this way, as we face the real situations of life, right, right all the, the, the present day stuff that election touches on, 
this way, our emotions and our logic would never stop us from hearing God out, listening carefully to Him, to, and then drawing accurate conclusions and also desiring our emotions to follow. So you see what God is asking of us here. We who don't think right all the time or feel right all the time, you know, we ask this of our children who may not be ready to hear and to bear the full weight of our reasoning for what we tell them today, right? We ask them to trust us. When our kids might not be ready, it might not be good for to tell them all the details about what will come in the future as we encourage them, encourage them through the present. We ask them to trust us and to hear us out. So with that, let's get to the main point, which is also our very first point. Is God fair in election? Is God fair in election? Paul poses this question in an effort to teach his readers. It's a normal way of uh, instructing the readers at this time. He asks the question that he knows we all will be asking about election and about God. Let me just summarize his argument as he's getting up to Romans chapter 9 here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul is so eager you know, to, to be in fellowship with the Romans. He wants the Roman Christians to support his mission as he brings the gospel to Spain, where the gospel has not been preached yet. And he eagerly tells them there in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel, the wonderful good news that, Jesus, that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ is going out to the world, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That's exciting. God himself is on the move. Paul to bring the gospel all the way to Spain. But if you have ever studied the world's religions, whether today you're studying or, you know, if we put ourselves back in Judaism in the first century, you know that there's something strange about that question, right? The issue is that the vast majority of Jews, whether today or back then, deny, reject that Jesus Christ is God's Messiah. You see why this is important, right? Because if God says that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, the question then is, well, they don't believe, so is God's word true? Does God's word fail? And then thus Paul answers the question there in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. He says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And he goes on explaining uh, as to why the word of God has not failed. He basically says, look, not all Israel is Israel. We look over here and we see that the vast majority of Jews reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God, come to save sinners. And he says, look, not all Israel is Israel. There's always been a remnant out of the whole. Not all physical Israel are God's spiritual people. Paul later, later on calls this in Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God, the people of faith. Those are the true children of Abraham. Not all Israel is Israel. And the way that he, he works through the logic here, again, we just, I, I want to present this to you so that you can... Uh, See the logic as he leads up to our passage today. If you just scan there in verse 8 and following, he gives two examples. He, he says, look, look at Abraham's first two sons. There was Ishmael, there was Isaac. Ishmael was the firstborn son of a maidservant. And then there was Isaac, son of, uh, blanking on the name for some reason, Sarah. And, uh, and he says, look, you know, tradition would go that, uh, that, that the privilege would go to the firstborn son. But no, God doesn't do that. Ishmael is not part of the people of God. He is rejected. And then instead, the promises of God go to Isaac, right? And then he says, okay, that's example number one. Let's go to example number two. You look at Isaac and Rebekah's children. They had twins. There's Jacob. There's Esau. Same parents even. And yet only one is chosen. Only Jacob is chosen. Jacob and not Esau. God has always had a remnant, a chosen people, even though they all come from the same ethnic line. Uh, that's his reasoning there. Of course, the word of God has not failed. And you see there about God's sovereign election. You look there, he is clear on the basis of God's sovereign election. Not on anything we have done, anything inherent to us, but God's free choice. Look there at verse 11. Though they were not yet born, right? So when did God choose? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. That's when they hadn't even done anything. And then you see there the purpose, the purpose for his election in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls and creates his spiritual people. He's clear. Election is not based on our works or anything we do, but based in God's sovereign purposes, his will and his choice. 
Now you see what's going on here. Already we're wondering, well, what do we make of our choices? We're going to get to that <clears throat> next week. You look there in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? That's responsibility. We're going to get to uh, human responsibility and God's sovereignty. But to touch on it now, just a little bit. We did last week too. <clears throat> we know that we make a choice, right? I lift my hands. I genuinely want to lift my hands. I put them down. I genuinely put, want to put them down. So how does that make sense in relation to God's election? Here, Paul's not denying choice. He's not denying choice. He's just saying there's more to it than choice. We see it here. God's purpose of election by his own sovereign grace and mercy. This brings us to our section. If God is sovereign sovereign in his grace to elect some to salvation and passes over others, how is he fair, just, and righteous? That's the first point, just setting the lay of the land. That's the question. Second point, the answer. Second point, the answer is simply no way. He says there in strong terms, by no means. It's done. With that kind of answer, you know, which frankly catches some of us off guard, we just simply want to think, okay, should we close the Bible and just go home? Like, it's done. And not only that, though, but let's reread the section. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Case closed. He says it. We should believe it. To some... This is actually not the most satisfying answer. Again, to some others, it is. That's fine, right? Maybe to you, if you're exploring Christianity, this might not be so satisfying. I wonder, just ask yourself a question for a moment. In your world, is there room for God to even do what he pleases? If you could design your world, is there even room for God to do what he pleases? That'll show you who reigns over your kingdom and do you even want god to do as he pleases these are really important questions whether you are a christian or not a christian because then it exposes where your heart is in relation to god if you don't want god to rule and to do what he pleases there could be a number of different reasons maybe you misunderstand the character of god maybe you think that he's like every other earthly authority and so you don't want him on but maybe you're just simply as scripture says we are all sinners We all have rejected God. We all go our own way, as Romans has already said. We want to do what we want to do, frankly. We want to be our own gods. Keep those questions in the back of your mind as we go on. The answer is simple here. God is sovereign. Let's be really clear. We're going to dive into this, but let's be clear up front. God is sovereign. You do not bring things into existence through speech if you are not sovereign. And if you don't possess sovereign power. You do not command people and inanimate objects, your creation, if your word is not sovereign. You do not judge man if you don't possess sovereign authority and the righteousness to even judge. Thinking of Jesus, you do not enter into history to take on the same stuff as man, your creation, if you are not sovereign. You don't let yourself be murdered by sinful people only to take your life up again if you do not sovereignly hold the keys of life and death. We could go on, right? You get the point. God is sovereign and he does what he pleases. This is the very essence of God, the very essence of his name. So in Exodus, the book that Paul quotes here, according to the Bible, God is the great I am. Name is built on the word that he just is. He he is, he is. He's not dependent on anybody for his decisions. Exactly what uh, Danny prayed. He is matchless in his wisdom, matchless in his knowledge and power, his goodness and love. And not because we don't come close, because he's in a different category altogether. He is God. I am our creator. This is why we read the scripture passage. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So the conclusion is absolutely right. God says it. Therefore, we should believe it. Verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills but friends this is not all that he says this is not all that he says 
Paul brings to mind these huge, huge issues of history that is God's dealings with his Old Testament people in order to guide our hearts and your hearts to understand more and to rest in God's sovereignty in salvation here. For the rest of the sermon, we look at three issues that help us understand God's election of sinners unto salvation and passing over others for judgment. Three issues for the rest of the sermon that helps us understand the election of sinners unto salvation and God's passing over others unto judgment. Issue number one, to keep in mind here as we understand election, election shows God's mercy. Election shows God's mercy. God's electing some to salvation is about mercy. So you see the question that Paul poses, right, that we ourselves pose Is God just in this election stuff? It's interesting, Paul redirects here and he goes to mercy. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Obviously, God's sovereignty is highlighted here. He pardons those he desires to pardon, right? We know this from pardons here in the world. The president does what he wants to. Kings do what they want to. But in bringing up this quote, right, Verse 15, we have to ask, well, why did the people need mercy to begin with? Why did the Israelites, right, he's writing to these people, and he reaches all the way back to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Why did they need mercy in the first place? What did they do to need pardon? The Bible simply says they sinned. Turn over to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. If you're sitting next to somebody who seems like, um, you know, they might be new to the Bible, you can help them get there. Exodus chapter 33, we're not going to read from this immediately. I just want you to be there when we get to this one particular quote. Uh, And we come to Exodus chapter 33 and Exodus in general because this is where this quote comes from where Paul says and God says to Moses. A little bit of background. In the time of the Exodus, God had uh, promised, he had drawn near to one man, Abraham, promised him that he would have a land, people, and that one from his line would be a blessing to all nations. And then by the time Exodus rolls around, God is ready to move his people out of Egypt, right? The, the, the one person has grown into over a million, at least. Some people say over three million, right? So they are a nation. God is on the move, fulfilling his promises to this pagan man at the time. As God drew near to him, he was a pagan man. <clears throat> but as we know, as God deliver, desired to deliver his people, of course, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, refused to let them go. And so this begins a battle of God, the king of heaven, against a so-called God over the earthly kingdom of the Egyptians. He was seen to be a god, right? Think polytheism. He was seen as one of the gods. And for Pharaoh's sins, God sends plague after plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians because they refused to listen to God and obey him. In in, uh, Exodus chapter 5, even, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let your people go. And, and uh, Pharaoh is like, I've never heard of your God. And besides that, Exodus 5 says, I'm building my kingdom. It's useful to have you slaves around building me, the king, as a God, my kingdom. <clears throat> and we know what happens there. For Pharaoh's sins, once again, God judges Pharaoh and the Egyptian Pharaoh sealed his doom in trying to kill the Lord's people. There in the Red Sea, Pharaoh and all his chariots and the men driving them were drowned and passed the Red Sea. On dry ground were the people of God, delivered by God, victory. Now we would assume, you know, just thinking about what the people, what the people deserved, right? We would assume that the Israelites would have grand visions on the other side of the Red Sea of of God moving swiftly to deliver his people. Plague after plague after plague, the destruction of these so-called gods against the one and only true God. And that they would be moved to worship God forever as they were to be the light of God to the nations. That he is the only good and loving, righteous Lord over all. But they don't do that, do they? Instead, they build themselves an idol. The glory that was to be to God, they ascribe it to this thing that they themselves had made. This is our God who delivered us from Egypt. 
He, it, will go before us. And so they abandoned the very God that delivered them. They traded away His glory for something made in their own image, in the image of the stuff of the world. They rejected Him, their Father, who adopted them. He who said and proved, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What did the people deserve? The people of Israel. They deserved God's judgment and condemnation. And so this is what God did. He judged them. But not all people paid the penalty of death, though, as the story continues there. In helping us see our own need for a mediator, God appointed Moses to mediate between God and sinners. He prays, Moses prays for the forgiveness of the people, which of course foreshadows Jesus Christ, right? So earlier in the story of Exodus, Moses didn't live for God and his people. But here, by the time he's praying and interceding for God, God had taught him. As Moses mediates and pleads for God's mercy to God's national people, Moses even asks God, if you will not forgive my people, blot me out from your book. It's very similar actually to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. The result is not all are destroyed. Friends, let me ask you, in relation to election, in relation to choosing one over another, why does God show mercy to some? Is it because they were better, more intelligent? They were more righteous, maybe? The answer, of course, is no. God chooses those, that remnant, because of his own sovereign purposes, because of his own promises. In Exodus chapter 33, God tells Moses and others who are on the Lord's side to gather yourselves together and go. Where? Quote, to the land I promised you. The land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to your people, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now go, because I promised it to you. And as the story unfolds in a meeting between God and Moses where Finally, we have a humble Moses, a dedicated Moses, a reliable Moses. He pleads with God, give me your presence. He didn't want it earlier, but now he wants it. Give me your presence. Be with us. Show us your glory. Now look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. Go ahead and look there. And we're going to read this because this is what Paul quotes from. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Eventually this happens. Go look at 34 verse 5. It says there the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Romans 15, 9.15 says there, that quotation, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, we think about election, right? Okay, let's go back to thinking about election. Can you imagine the Israelites who were left after a lot of the Israelites had been judged, after Pharaoh and the Egyptians had been judged? Can you imagine the Israelites saying to God in that very moment, this whole salvation thing, choosing some for salvation and passing over others. You are not fair. Of course not. Number one, they'd have no question at all that God does as he pleases, as he hurls plagues at Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then number two, given what Israel deserves, we see the salvation of any is not about whether or not God is just but it's about God bestowing mercy. It's a very definite mercy. Mercy, withholding that which people deserve in order to give them grace, 
to give them what they don't deserve. Can you imagine seeing God fulfill his promises despite the people's sin? God choosing to draw near to them and giving him his very presence and God forgiving the people as pictured in the blood sacrifices and God still taking them to be his people. And the people saying, we should have gotten immediate justice. What they deserved was judgment and condemnation, but what God gave them was mercy. Why would anyone say God is unjust in election if he withholds from some the judgment they deserve? Why would anyone say God is unjust in salvation, election, if he withholds from some the judgment they deserve? Now, friends, the fact that God saves any at all should move us Christians, his people, to thanksgiving. God chooses to withhold that which we deserve, the definition of mercy, in order to give us that which we don't, new relationship with God, adoption into his family, forgiveness of sins, right standing with him, eternal life, praise God. You know, church, the more that I grow in my understanding of my own sin and God's righteousness and his obligation to judge sin, the more that I come to identify with the Israelites, and Pharaoh, and the Egyptians, the more I rejoice in God being a God of mercy. The great I Am has chosen to bestow mercy upon you, Christian. I mean, apart from Christ, the Bible says, I, you, are apart from Christ, we are under the power of sin, a real power, where sin and death exercise power over us, having chosen to rebel against God, freely chosen to rebel against God, and now his law speaks over us and we are under condemnation and his law will stop every one of our running mouths. I have not sought after God's righteousness. I have not done good. I am unable to earn God's favor. And God gives us mercy. I deserve a death sentence, but God chose to give me life. As Romans, 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All because he loves us. All because he loves us. Reminds us of why God chose Israel in the first place. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says that he chose Israel not because they were strong in number, not because they were physically stronger than all the other nations, but because I loved you. God's steadfast love and mercy goes to people that he enters into covenant with and he secures for them, for his spiritual people, salvation. And you see this in Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and go back to Romans chapter 9. We see this in Romans chapter 9, this aspect of love, okay? So if you're thinking God's election is cold-hearted, it's just mechanical, we're like robots and he's like a robot in election, that's not true. We can't draw that conclusion. Why is that? Because what does he say in verse 15? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is where you see love and compassion tied together, and God sees the state of sinners, and he is moved to save some. He has compassion. God sees our need and is moved, knowing that we are in a dangerous situation. We are like sheep without a shepherd. And so God chooses to save some. Friends, this, the, we are given the gospel here. John Stott says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is mercy, or sorry, is compassion given to sinners who are in need. That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has now been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed to all, to the Jew first, to the Gentiles. Why is that? Because God loves us. He sends Jesus Christ to fulfill the law and all of its demands so that those who repent and believe would not have to. All because he loves us. He bears the wrath on the cross that we ourselves deserved so that we would be free. All because he loves us. And it says there that in the book of Romans that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He rose from the dead on account of our justification to prove to all that the payment has now been made once and for all, for all those who would ever repent of their sins and trust in the Lord, the God over all. Friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, right? Might we have questions about responsibility? Absolutely. But knowing God is sovereign, does ne it never does absolve us 
from our responsibility or excuse us from exercising responsibility. We are commanded to repent of our sins and believe. We are called by Jesus to come and know this great and grand forgiveness. And we will know the mercies of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's true. And we need to believe that. The gospel is good news of mercy to the undeserving. John Stott says, he continues, the symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. The symbol of the religion of Jesus is the cross, not the scales. Praise God in his sovereignty, right? He is the one we are to look at. Look at verse 16. It says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion or running or basically our doing, but on God who has mercy. Our sovereign king exercises. He delights in exercising mercy all because he wants his glory displayed to the ends of the earth as we're going to see later on. There is nothing we can do, nothing we are in and of ourselves that gets us out of our need. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's mercy. And friends, that doesn't even make sense. I think that we, there's something that we could do to earn God's mercy. I mean, how do we earn mercy? I earn the privilege of having God withhold his judgment that I rightly deserve? That's not mercy, that's transaction. That's a work, that is a wage. It's an obligation, and it therefore strips God of his mercy. But again, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The fact that God chooses some for salvation should lead us to thanksgiving, right? Why is that? Because those who repent of their sins and turn to Christ know God and his mercy. It's not that he sweeps our sin under the rug and pretends we were never against him. No, the reason why he gives mercy to you, Christian, is because his son, Jesus Christ, took the full weight of God's justice and wrath upon himself. Praise God for his plan of salvation, his plan to save those whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Thank God salvation does not depend on who we are or what we do, but on God and what he does. He has mercy according to Exodus chapter 33. He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is God fair? Is not the best question to ask when thinking about why God saves some. A better question is why has God chosen to show mercy to any? First issue here. Well, let's be loud and clear. It brings us to a second issue. Let's be loud and clear. If we want to talk about justice, God is always just in the judgment of a sinner. God is always just in the judgment of a sinner. This is a second issue to consider. We think about the judgment of Pharaoh, right? We think about God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is God's judgment of him, ultimately, eternally. This is God moving to judge Pharaoh. You, 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 look, you can look at uh, 17 and 18, Romans chapter 9, 17 and 18. Why is there no injustice on God's part? He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, still referring to the Exodus, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show you my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth how we know it's about hardening he says there so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills this is a quotation straight out of exodus chapter 9 and you see the, the same main themes there god has mercy on some for salvation and also for his glory here god hardens pharaoh's heart and it is the display of god's justice his righteousness also known as his glory again Let's look at uh, where human responsibility comes into play. Pharaoh is seen to harden his own heart. Just listen. You can turn there, but listen to Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. God then sends the plagues, and in the seventh plague, God tells Moses to announce to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then in verse 16 of the chapter in Exodus, or in the book of Romans, it says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Now you see that the tension, of course, we're going to get there next week. You see God's sovereignty, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but also in the book of Exodus, if you were to read that, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart as well. But remember, right, thinking about election and the fairness and the justice of God, think going back to election. What does God owe Pharaoh? You realize that if we think God owes Pharaoh mercy, if God is obligated to give Pharaoh mercy, we're going to have problems. If we think that God is somehow obligated to withhold judgment from Pharaoh, we are going to have problems. Remember, Pharaoh is actually just like Israel. In many ways, Israel is just like Pharaoh. God owes Pharaoh judgment. Pharaoh, too, had suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's how Romans describes all sinners, which is all of us. We've all rebelled against God. Pharaoh and the Egyptians had traded in the glory of God for false glory and the stuff of the world. Pharaoh himself was seated in the throne of God, so to speak. They worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. That's what Pharaoh did. That's what he's guilty of. In Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh says to Moses, I do not know this God once again. Why should I let the people go? I am building my own kingdom. Mercy is not owed. Only judgment. This is exactly what God gives him. In judging Pharaoh, God chooses to not show mercy. And thinking about whether God is just or not. Well, friends, you realize that in God judging Pharaoh, God actually proves his justice and righteousness, doesn't he? What if he were to turn a blind eye to all that Pharaoh has done? What if he were just to turn a blind eye to all the sin that Pharaoh had done, his idolatry and rebellion against the one and only Lord? What is amazing, in God judging, right? Okay, we, as far as I know, are all Gentiles. We are all non-Jews. God says that he's going to display his power in Pharaoh and proclaim his name to the ends of the earth. That is non-Jews, right? We all here, as far as I know, are all non-Jews. We look at the Exodus, God judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the plagues. And what do we think? We think we see God's justice. We think there is God's righteousness in showing that sins, in fact, will be judged and that God's character stands. We see justice and righteousness against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, mercy and compassion to those whom God has chosen. And so his glory is proclaimed in all the earth. Which brings us to the last one. The third thing to keep in mind as we seek to understand God's choosing of some and passing over others is that it is for God's glory. It is for God's glory. That's what we see here in this passage. We're not going to spend too much time here on this point as it's kind of wrapped up into what we talked about just now in point number two. The second thing to keep in mind But you look there in 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, basically him hardening Pharaoh, Pharaoh is hardening himself as well, Exodus says, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This glory is made known to the world We have all turned away from God and deserve his immediate judgment. But thank God that he is a God of mercy, grace, and compassion, all because he is who he is. He is the God of mercy. And he sent Christ into the world to save sinners. That's God's mercy. That's what should blow our mind, that he would choose to save any at all, that he would choose to delay his justice. And then not only that, though, but give Christ to absorb God's wrath and justice for all and any who would repent of their sins and believe to the ends of the earth. And friends, that's exactly where Paul's going. 
If you were to go home today, which I encourage you to, to read Romans chapter, the rest of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we know already that the hardening of Pharaoh meant deliverance for the Israelites, right? Well, he's going to get to, in the rest of this section, Romans chapters 9, 10, 11, that the hardening of the Jews meant salvation for the Gentiles. And so we see that God is glorified in our lives as we are not Jews. We are to the ends of the earth, the people from the ends of the earth that he himself is gathered together, all because he is a God of grace and mercy. To conclude, is God fair in choosing some for salvation and passing over others? Of course. God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens those he wills. And as we look at these verses and study them and wrestle with them and pray that our, Lord, that our hearts would rest under the sovereignty of God, we are to remember that if it is immediate judgment and justice that we want, we would all be condemned. Praise God, he is a God of mercy and compassion, and that he saves any at all and does so for his own glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that, or some of us acknowledge, that our temptation is to judge you as if we are in your place, as if we are God. But Lord, we know that you are God. We acknowledge too, like all, all sinners in Scripture who are your people acknowledge that Sometimes it is hard to understand your ways. Not because, Lord, you are confusing, but, Lord, you are so far above us. You are wise. You possess all knowledge. No one has known your mind. No one is your counselor. You depend on no one for your decisions and to see your purposes come to fruition. Lord, we pray that you would help us wrestle with these things and submit our hearts and our minds to you. We pray, Lord, that we would draw conclusions where you draw, help us draw conclusions and where you aren't, uh, where you choose not to reveal all specific things to the nth degree. Lord, we pray that we would be very slow. Lord, we thank you that you are, in fact, a God of love, of mercy, and of grace. Lord, we pray that as we turn to the cross of Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that you would help our hearts, no matter if we are confused or not. Lord, we pray that we would be moved to thanksgiving and praise, knowing that you sent your Son to enter into human history, to take on flesh and to die in the sinner's place, those sinners who repent of their sins and believe. And now forgiveness and salvation can be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. You are our God. You are in the heavens and you do all that you please. We thank you, God, that you take us to be your people. We praise you for your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.